Good morning, church family. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open up to Exodus chapter 24. That's where we're going to be. And as March alluded to in those announcements, he's absolutely right. We're starting a new section of the book of Exodus this morning, which means we're starting a new series. And the series is, is called Worship Is. It's a Worship Is series. And it ties in so much with what that video was alluding to. We're here and, and we're living through this moment. There's a whole lot of different reactions that we can respond to it. But one of those reactions is, worship. We can worship our way through it. That's going to be a beautiful thing that we're going to see as we go through the text this morning. That's kind of the next big thing that God wants to teach his people. We've been through so many big things in the book of Exodus, but now over the next several chapters, God is going to show us that not only does he desire to be worshiped, not only does he deserve to be worshiped, but he is making a way so we can worship him. So let's pray and we'll start breaking this down and see what what, what God's word has to teach us about this. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, I'm just, I'm humbly aware of how important this topic is. Father, I'm, I'm humbly aware of how important this topic is to you, to your heart, for how you want your people to worship you, to respond to you, to approach you. In this way, and Father, any time we come before a, a difficult topic or a difficult season, Father, it brings us to the place of our inability. It brings us to a place where we recognize our weakness, and that's where I'm at this morning. Father, I need you to be my strength now and always. I need you to speak to your people about this. Father, I need you to anoint my lips, fill me with your Holy Spirit, to pour yourself out through your word upon your people those who are tuning in and listening. Father, we need and desire wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. God, reveal yourself in the text this morning and connect dots. God, grow us in a greater illumination as we come open-handed before you, saying, Father, speak your church. We're listening. That is our heart's cry as we approach this text this morning, and we lift it all up in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want, as we get started, I, I want to I ask a question for you this morning. And the question is pretty simple, but it's, but it's what is worship? If you look at this title slide, you're, you're going to see there's a guitar in the background. And so you're kind of thinking, I mean, is that worship? Is, is worship just music? Is worship just singing? I mean, how would you define worship? I want you to think about this. We use the word worship to, to kind of clump a whole bunch of things together. In fact, what we're doing right here, this is what we call our weekly worship service, right? That's what we, that's what we do here, which means everything we're doing is to aim at worship. But there's a lot of things we do on a Sunday morning gathering at a worship service. There's, there's prayer, there's reading the word, there's singing, there's announcements, there's teaching the word, there's more prayer, there's There's communion, there's singing, and then fellowship with one another. We say, well, is all of that worship? I mean, is that what worship is? Is this something that we only do on a Sunday? Is this something that we only do at a certain time and a certain place? I mean, I have all these questions in my my mind about worship. Is it something we verbally do? Is it something we internally do? I mean, is it seen? Is it visible? Is it not? Again, I have all these questions about worship. What is it? Well, I want to simplify it down to just its base definition for you this morning. This is just kind of the foundation of what worship is. Here's what worship is. Put simply, worship is anything you do that declares the great worth of God and deepens our relationship with Jesus as Lord. 
Did you catch that simple definition of worship? It's anything we do that lifts the name of God up, that declares his worth and deepens our relationship with Jesus as Lord. And those two words, worth and Lord, worth and lordship, that's key to understanding what worship is. And I just want to break this down a little bit and define this simplicity before we get started and and start doing part one of this worship is serious. Let's talk about this. Worship is declaring God's worth. Where would we get an idea like that? I have three different Bible verses I want to show you. The first one comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what Peter says is, worship is a lifestyle. Worship is an expression of our lives. Something that we do even in the midst of trials, grief, and suffering. We always have a reason to worship, living our lives out for praise, honor, and glory at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but living lives of worship. So he says, it's a lifestyle. It's declaring God's worth by the way we live. David says this. This is Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. David says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, more to be desired than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So what's David doing? He's showing God's worth. He's lifting the name of God on high. He's saying here in a psalm, in singing, right? Worship here is singing. It's expressing God's worth through song. But he's says, your law is perfect, your statutes are right, etc., etc. But he says, there's no greater value. There's no greater reward. There's no greater worth than knowing you, God, and expressing that through worship. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4, there's this glimpse into heaven, into the throne room of God. And there's these 24 elders that sit around the throne of God. And in this moment, in this verse that we're going to read, we're going to see what they say after they've taken the crowns off their head and set them before the the feet of God before the feet of Jesus who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. But they say this, Revelation 4, verse 11, they say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. I'm I'm sharing with you these verses to say worship is declaring, proclaiming, testifying the great worth of God. And these three men, these well, these two men, David and Peter, and then these 24 elders, that's exactly what they're doing. God, you are of great worth. Your name is to be lifted high. And that is done by our life. That is done by the expression of our lips, through song. That is done here by just a testimony as we're talking to the Lord. Now, why is that important? Because when we understand worship, this part is true. What we value the highest is what we worship. 
what we value the highest is what we worship. What is of greatest value is, is what we're going to show by bowing our lives down to it. And God is the only one worthy of worship. God alone is where we direct our praise. So that's at least the first part of the definition. Worship shows worth. Remember the second half? Worship also shows lordship. Worship is something we do that grows us deeper in relationship with Jesus as Lord. Because this is also true. If, if we worship what we value the highest, what we worship is what we obey. What we worship is what we obey. And Jesus alone is Lord. So he's the one who we should not only worship, but also obey. So now it's also about lordship. Jesus alone has the titles, Lord, ruler, master, leader, shepherd, savior of our lives. We see Jesus in that light and we worship him. And as we do that, that deepens our love for him. That deepens our understanding of him. The more we spend time with him, the more we see him. The more we see him, the more we know him. The more we know him, the more we love him. The more we love him, the more we're like him. And it deepens our relationship as we worship, as we live life submitting to him as Lord. That's what worship does. We have a great picture, just one verse about this that I want to show you. This is coming from Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 and 7. It says this, And when Jesus was in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask, a very fragrant oil, and she poured it out on the head of Jesus as he sat at the table. This is a woman we know as Mary of Bethany, as Mary and Martha Mary. And what we see here is she's going to worship silently, but with her actions. And she's going to take a very expensive flask of oil. We're told in other gospel accounts, it's 300 denarii. It's a year's wages, 30 to $50,000 in today's wages. And she's going to dump it all upon Jesus' head. And we say, why would she do that? Why? Because she knows Jesus is worth it and he is Lord of all. That's our definition of worship. We need to understand that. That's building on what we're going to be talking about throughout this series. But she pours it all upon Jesus. So again, what's worship? Worship declares worth. Worship declares lordship. Worship is anything we do that shows the great worth of God and deepens our relationship with Jesus as Lord. Now, in part one, we're going to see that God is going to teach us the first thing that is needed before we worship God, before we show him worth, before we deepen our relationship with him as Lord, is we need to have a relationship with him before any of that can happen. We can't glorify God. We can't exalt his name if we haven't first come to him and know him and are in a covenant relationship with him. So that's what we're going to talk about first. Worship is relationship. That's what chapter 24 is all about. So open your Bibles, chapter 24. Let's look at these first two verses. It says, Now he, God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. Now, stopping here just briefly, what's going on? And we need to kind of set the stage. We see clearly that God is calling Moses, Aaron, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders, 70 judges, 70 nobles, 70 leaders of Israel to come up the mountain 
and worship. And I want you just to note that this is a call to worship. This whole chapter is going to show us a beautiful pattern of worship and what a worship service looks like. And the first thing we see is a call to worship. God is inviting them to come and worship. But some of the details here, he says, only Moses can come near. The rest of you, 73, you have to stay and worship me from afar. And the rest of the other people, the other two plus million people are down at the base of the mountain and they still cannot touch the mountain. They still cannot come up and worship the Lord. And remember why that is. Remember why Moses kind of gets this special access. It's because the people asked him to be their mediator. Back in chapter 20, when God is audibly speaking the Ten Commandments to everyone, they're all here hearing the audible voice of God. Remember the people said, said, Moses, whoa, this is too much. We can't handle this. This is too much. Moses, what we want is you to be the mediator. You go talk with God, have God talk with you. And then you tell us what God said, because we can't handle this. Remember they're trembling with fear. They're like, we're going to die if we have any more of this. So they've asked Moses to be their mediator. So here's how this goes. God is, is showing through, through Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the other 70, God is, is allowing them them to represent the people before him. All right, they represent the people before God, but Moses represents God before the people. That's what we're seeing here as being set up. And it's a beautiful picture because what we see is this mediator, Moses, and it reminds us of our mediator, Jesus. Think that that Moses can go in and be in the presence of God, but notice he can't take anyone else with him. Only he can go. And that's, that's beautiful because it's like, we can't go if Jesus doesn't go first. Jesus is our mediator. He's our forerunner. He has gone before us. But what is so beautiful about Jesus is he can, and he does take us with him. He is our mediator, but also the one who carries us into the presence of God so we can commune with God together. But I'm pointing this out as we talk about worship. You can't just do it however you want to do it. You have to do it according to God's terms. If you don't believe me, read Leviticus chapter 10. Read what happens to Nadab and Abihu. They try to do things however they want, and it does not end up well for them. There's an order. There's a pattern. We see here, Jesus is our, our forerunner, our pattern, the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through him. Why? Because he's our mediator. Look at this verse. This is 1 Timothy 2.5. It says, Paul says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, between God and human beings. Who is he? The man, Christ Jesus, the God-man. So just as we're seeing Moses kind of be the mediator representing God before the people, Jesus is our mediator. So just kind of notice, we've got a ton of types and shadows this morning that is so beautiful, but, but I'm just wanting us to see as God invites this, this call to worship, it beckons us to, to see Jesus and know, I can't go any further if I'm not in Christ. I can't go up the mountain if I'm not hidden in Christ. I can't have connection with God unless I have a relationship with Jesus. And we'll see this unfold more as we go through this. But that's, that's really what's going on. 74 men go up the mountain. I want you to see this kind of as a mini leaders retreat. They're up here on the mountain before what is going to happen comes next. And I love that because I want you to know if you're leading in any capacity, you're leading in your home, you're leading in a ministry, you're leading in a church, this This is a pattern to follow, a great exhortation. You and I, we need to be going up the mountain often. We need to be going up and communing with the Lord, worshiping Him. We can't can't lead people to a place that we don't frequent often ourselves. 
There has to be something we can pass on and we can only pass on what we've received. We receive it as we spend time at the feet of Jesus. Moses is gonna be up here spending time with the Lord, receiving the instructions of everything else we're going to read happens next in chapter 24. And after Moses receives it, we get the idea that he passes it on to these other 73 and they're gonna go down the mountain and they're all going to serve the Lord together and help implement it upon the people. But it's a beautiful model. I love the little proverb that says, if you wanna go fast, go alone. If you wanna go far, go together. And there's 74 people that God has called up to then bring this thing together so he's going to implement that. So that's what's going on. Verse three says, so Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. Now I want to point out just ever so briefly or notice all the words and all the judgments or ordinances or statutes. I want you to see there's, there's a difference. God says there's a difference. Now the word speaks of the 10 words, the 10 commandments. There's the 10 commandments, God's top 10, and then there's everything else he said from chapter 20 through chapter 23. There's there's eventually going to be 613 commandments. So there's the 10 and all the others. But notice they're all being given to the people. It's all God's word, and he all expects them to be obeyed. But Moses comes down, he's going to share this with the people, all that he said, and the people respond at the end of verse 3, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. They're saying in a sense, yes and amen. We want this. We will obey. Now stopping here just just briefly, I think some of us, we read this and, and we hear these words and because we know the way things are going to go down for the nation of Israel, we know the golden calf awaits. I think some of us, we kind of look at these words as if they're empty words as if they just don't carry a whole lot of power because we know the people are not going to be able to keep them. They're going to fail in epic fashion. And so maybe we read these, the people saying all these words we will do, and you're like, yeah, they don't mean it. Listen, I want to try and reframe that for you this morning. I don't want you to think that, nah, they don't, they don't mean that. Listen, they mean it. And it's absolutely the right response. And we know that because God doesn't rebuke them. God who knows the heart doesn't say, oh, come on, don't don't give me those, those empty words with your lips. I know you don't mean it. God doesn't say that because they mean it. Here's the issue. Their spirit is willing, but their flesh is weak. And listen, I can relate to that. I think you can relate to that too. I don't wake up in the morning and think I'm going to sin against the Lord and break all of his commandments. I wake up saying, Lord, there's incredible potential today. I can't wait to walk with you today. And sometimes my day ends with doing that which I didn't want to do. I can relate that the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, and that's what's going on here. So I want you to see that. They have the right heart. This is the right response. God, all the words you say, we want to mean it. I want you to know, church, every time we come to the word, oh, that our response would be the exact same. God, I love your word. I love your will. I love what you've just commanded me. It's good. It's pure. It's noble. It's high. It's lofty, et cetera, et cetera. I want to do them. Yes and amen. That is the right heart, Christians. Our spirit should be willing. So what do we do with our flesh that is weak? 
Well, what we need is a willing spirit just like this. We need our spirit to be willing. And then you know what else? We need God's spirit to be able. Our spirit is willing. God's spirit is able. And when God's spirit is able, he is able to empower us, equip us to walk in this as we're filled with the Holy Spirit. So please understand, don't look at them and say, oh, come on, fools, they they didn't mean it. Look at them with the reality that they meant it, they lacked the power. I can mean it. And in Christ, through the strength and supply of his spirit, in Christ, through the strength and supply of his spirit, I can also have the power. Which means my spirit can be willing, his spirit in me can be able. And that's what we want to do. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to look at God's word and say yes and amen. And at the same time saying, but God, I need you. Because I can't do this. My flesh is weak. My flesh needs to be crucified so I can be filled with the Holy Spirit. I need to live a life, you Christian, we need to live a life to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is the single greatest repeated request of my life. Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I'm praying that often every single day because I need God that much. And so do you. So don't look at them and just discount everything that is done here. See your similarity and see how God has made a remedy for you and I to walk a different way. Walking, fulfilling these things because greater is he that is in me than the flesh that once ruled over me and he that is in this world. But that's what the people are expressing here. God, we will. Moses, you tell God, we will. And that's a good start. They're expressing their intentions. We want to do this. But I want to take this to the next step and I want you to see that that isn't enough for God. That isn't good enough for God. It's not like the chapter ends right there. It's like, okay, cool. Let me tell you all about the tabernacle, right? Listen, intentions can be good, but intentions are not ever good enough. There needs to be some follow through. There needs to be something else that happens here. God wants his people in a relationship with him, in a covenant relationship with him. And that means you can state your intentions. Now there needs to be some follow through, some commitment, some vows made, a covenant made. And it's a lot like this. It, it's, a, it's a lot like when, when you're thinking about getting married. I've had the incredible privilege of officiating four couples in our fellowship. And I am ready for more, by the way. But you four couples, I pray for you often. I'm praying for you and, and that God would just see the best for your marriage. It's a privilege to be able to be a part of those, those, marriage, those marriage vows. But I want you to think about it this. Each one of those couples, I met with them. I, they come to me and say, hey, we're, we want to get married. Would you be interested in officiating? And I say, oh, I'm honored. Let's meet. I haven't said yes or no. I say, let's meet. And so we come together. What do I do? I, I, I lay out what what marriage is in the Bible. I lay out what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife. Not my opinion, God's opinion. And I say, is this what you want? And they say, oh, I do. But it's not that I do, right? They're just saying, I do. We, our intentions are we want to be married. We love each other. We love the Lord. We want to obey the Lord. We know God wants us to be married. So we're going to walk in obedience and we want to do that. So they express their intentions. But listen, they're not married yet, right? They need to come to an altar. They need to make their vows. 
they need to enter into a covenant of marriage. That's the same exact thing that we're seeing here. The people have expressed their intentions. They want to be married, but they're not there yet. God wants to do something more. And now comes the time for some covenant vows, a covenant relationship that God wants his people to enter into. Remember, worship is first relationship with God. And that's what God is going to solidify now. That's what's going to happen next. You're going to like this. It gets a little weird, but you're going to like this. Verse four says, and Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Did you just hear that? Listen, I hope you're looking down, reading this for yourself, following along in your own Bibles, and seeing what God is just saying here. But here's what happens. Moses has come down, he's read all the words, they've shown their intentions, and now comes the time to set the covenant, to seal the covenant. So we're told Moses wakes up early in the morning. He's excited about this. He wakes up early in the morning. He knows today is covenant day. Today is the day that all these people are going to enter into the covenant relationship with the Lord their God. It's going to be awesome, and he can't wait, and I love that. I, I love the urgency. Moses doesn't sleep in on this day. Moses doesn't get around to it in the afternoon. He wakes up early in the morning. He doesn't delay. And I love that. I can't encourage you enough in that. If you've kind of been waiting at the threshold of this relationship with Jesus, you, you've heard, you've heard the gospel. You know how much God loves you. You know that he sent his son to die for you. You feel the drawing of the Holy Spirit to you saying, this is true. I've got good and perfect plans for you, but you're kind of sitting there going, I don't know. Listen, today is new covenant day. Today is is the day of salvation with urgency. Come to the Lord. Invite him into your life. Engage in that relationship and watch him transform your life from the inside out. That's what Moses is so excited about on this morning. Everything is going to change for these people when they get to experience relationship with God for themselves. So he wakes up early. He builds an altar and he makes 12 pillars. Now, I, I want you to see this. We get the idea that Moses does this part alone. And we get the idea that Moses is able to do it all in the morning. Now, why is that important? Because Moses is following the instructions that God gave him back in chapter 20 to keep the altar simple, to keep human hands out of it. That you don't need to get a bunch of masons together to get a bunch of hewn stone to build this crazy ornate altar. God doesn't want that. He doesn't need people to build steps to the altar. God didn't want that either. He says, keep it simple. Keep human hands out of it. And we get the idea that Moses Moses does because he's able to finish it by himself in the morning. 
And then these 12 pillars, notice they're symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. Who are they? All the people who are going to enter into covenant relationship with them. You're seeing a ceremony set up, right? You've got the people represented by the pillars. You've got God represented by the altar. Moses kind of being the meter. And then what do you have? You have animals being sacrificed. We're told of two offerings. And I love how Moses is, is told. It says he gets young men. This is before the Levitical priesthood has been established. Moses is 80 years old at this point. It'd be a whole lot of work. He doesn't get older guys, right? We want to sit back and supervise this. And he gets young men. You go and slaughter a bunch of oxen. Some are going to be burnt offerings. Some are going to be peace offerings. And the difference between those two offerings, the burnt offerings come first. And the burnt offering is an offering that is given to the Lord and it is wholly entirely completely consumed on that altar nothing comes back to you it's initially shown as God we're giving all of ourselves to you we're surrendering to you this is an offering to make atonement for our sin to cover our sin here's here's all of me as shown through this burnt offering and then a peace offering which comes next it represents that God has received the atonement he's received that burnt offering and now you can make a peace peace offering where not all of that is given. Some of that is going to be burned on the altar. Some of it's going to be taken back and you're actually going to share a meal after that as if to represent that you are in fellowship with the Lord. There's peace now between you and God because he's accepted your sacrifice on behalf of another or through that other animal, that burnt offering. So that's what's kind of happening here. It's It's a sacrifice, animal sacrifice. But notice this, these animals are going to be killed. The blood is going to be drained and then half of it's going to be put on the altar saying, God, this is, this is, this is our sacrifice. This is for you. And the other half is going to be put in basins where it will later be sprinkled upon the people. Now we're thinking, what is all that about? We're all trying to think, I think some kids are thinking, oh, that'd be crazy cool. I mean, all that blood. Wow. Some of us adults are like, that's weird. What if I wore my favorite shirt? Like that, I don't want blood sprinkled upon me. What if, what if I'm, uh, what if I suffer hemophobia? I'm just a fear of blood. If I pass, I don't want that on me. That sounds gross. What if you're just kind of a neat freak? Like, no, no, thank you. What if you're here and you're just like, bottom line, I, I don't want that. I'm going to, I'm going to pass. I wanted to see if I can hang out in the back and maybe just nobody will notice that I didn't get the blood sprinkled upon me. Listen, God will notice. And you know what that will mean? You are not in covenant relationship with God. If you're not covered by the blood, if it's not sprinkled upon you, you're not in covenant relationship with God. So we need to talk about this because that's what God is setting up. And you might be saying, really? Since when was that part of the deal? And I say, Christians, since always. Always. Blood has always been the requirement. Think about this from Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned to Abel, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and now with Moses and all of these people. Consider all those people I just mentioned. They all have a relationship with God. And they all worshiped God before there was a temple, before there was the law, before there was a, a, a tabernacle, the city of Jerusalem, any land of their own, a place where they could build a building. They all worshiped God before all that, but not before there was an altar. Not before there was an altar where the shedding of blood could be made on their behalf to cover their guilt 
and make them acceptable for God. If there was no blood that was shed here, there has been no forgiveness of sin. This is a non-negotiable necessity from God's perspective. And this just can't be understated. Why? Because God has established this. My law is to be obeyed. My law is perfect. It's my standard. And if you break even the least of these commandments, you're guilty of breaking them all, which means you're less than perfect. And the wages of sin is death. God is just, which means if sin has accrued a cost of death, that means death has to be paid. God wouldn't be just if he's like, ah, forget about it. It has to be paid. And in this old covenant, he permitted an animal sacrifice to be sacrificed, slaughtered, killed, and placed on the altar in our place. He received the blood of an innocent animal, innocent blood, in our place to atone, to make propitiation, a sacrifice that satisfies his wrath, his judgment against sin. So now he can see me covered by that blood. That was always what God is setting up. That's what he's setting up here. So it's a non-negotiable thing. Now we can look at this and say, this is God's grace. God didn't have to do any of this. He set it up. Hey, you failed. I told you, you blew it. Done. He gives his people the animal sacrifice to temporarily cover them for their sin that he knows they're going to engage in. Why? To maintain the relationship he wants to have with them. If worship is first relationship, we need to understand that we've always been able to have a relationship with God only by God's grace received through faith and the sacrifice, the spilled blood of an innocent animal person party in this circumstance. And I say person only speaking of Jesus here in the covenant that we have. But just notice this is the Old Testament. And this is this pattern that is so beautiful. God has said that the life is in the blood and without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And this scarlet thread we've seen from Genesis all the way to Revelation and it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus who's called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the spotless lamb of God without blemish. He's the one who lays his life down for us, fulfilling this same requirement that God establishes here. But Jesus, not only for our temporary covering, but our complete cleansing. We've been washed by the precious blood of Jesus. We'll talk more about this as we, as we close and, and partake of communion. And that's why we're doing communion today because it's so perfect. But think about this. On the night that Jesus is betrayed, he's going to be arrested, falsely condemned, accused, he's going to be led to a cross where he will be crucified. But Jesus is going to say on that night, before any of that happens, he's sitting with his 11 disciples and he's going to grab some bread and he's going to grab a cup and he's going to say, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body broken for you. Remember, he lifts up the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And that should, that should really start to connect dots here because look at verse eight. When God makes the commandment, God is certainly telling Moses what to do. Verse eight, Moses is going to sprinkle the blood on the people and say, this is the blood of the covenant. Every covenant that God has ever made has been sealed with blood. And when Jesus says that, what we're going to do as we close out our, surf, our, our service, it's the same aspect. This is the blood. Jesus' blood is what seals us into the covenant relationship we have with God through faith in him. The same way this covenant relationship is being sealed here in Exodus chapter 24. And that's why I want us to see that. God doesn't want signatures. God doesn't say, all right, who's for me? I want you to sign a petition or or sign something, sign a contract. God says, 
you, you're signed by the blood that seals you. Blood is the seal. We can look at the, this again and again and again, but when, when God is saying, I want to be your God, you want to be my people, you've expressed your intentions, and now here's what's required to seal the deal in a sense. Without the shedding of blood, this can't be done. There is no seal. There is no forgiveness. Now that may sound really odd to us, but it was not at all odd in this day. I referenced it last week. I put the verses in your study guide, but Genesis 15, Abraham is, God is making a covenant with Abraham. And I I mentioned this, you can read this on your own, but God tells Abraham, go get a bunch of animals, go sacrifice all those animals, go separate those animals in two piles on both sides and prepare to walk through the middle because we are going to cut a covenant. That's where that term comes from. And what they would do in this day, what God is establishing, Moses was well aware of, you would take an animal, you're going to separate it, and you're going to walk through the middle of that. And yes, that would be pretty gory. But while you're walking through the middle, you're restating the terms of that agreement. So you and the other person party to that covenant, there's no mistake. You know how serious this is. This is a matter of life and death. If you break this covenant and here are the terms, then party is going to be over there and party is going to be over there. Are we clear? And they say, yeah, roger that. Like we're not entering into a covenant lightly. And neither does God want his people to do that. That's what this is all about. There's no misunderstanding. God is communicating clearly what he wants his people to do. But that's what's happening. This is the covenant being made. So look at the picture again. The animals are sacrificed. There's a burnt offering. There's peace offerings. And then there is the blood poured upon the altar. And then notice, the law is read again. That's what it says. Before the blood is poured upon the people, verse 7 says, Moses takes the book of the covenant. All the words, all the laws, he reads it again a second time because he's given the people, you said first lightly, hey, we want to do everything. Did you really mean it? Because now there's blood everywhere. There's, there's sacrifices that have been made. Are you ready to make a commitment now? We're at the altar. Are you ready to be covered by the blood of, of this covenant? And now the people say again, yes, we will and be obedient and then the blood is sprinkled upon all of them. The same sacrifice that covers them for their sin is now the same blood that brings them into relationship with the Lord. And that is so, so beautiful because some of you, maybe you're tuning in for the first time or maybe you're like, I've always wanted to know what's wrong with Christians? Why are they always singing about blood? Why is blood so important? Because this is why blood seals the covenant. Blood seals the deal for us and not just some animal's blood, not the blood of bulls and goats that had to be repeatedly offered again and again and again because all they could cover, we're talking about the blood of Jesus, God's son, he who knew no sin and became sin for us so that when he died on a cross, his righteousness can be deposited into our account. That's the kind of blood. When you think about this whole situation, that is what is being said. I hope this is kind of connecting dots and making some sense to you because this is understood when we see that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus goes to the cross, an altar in in a sense. He's the one who's going to lay his life down in our place. He's going to spill his blood, have his body broken, and that is going to appease the righteous requirement of God. That is going to meet that perfect standard that's going to satisfy his wrath. And then his blood covers us, allowing us to be seen, connected in that same contract, in that same work. That's why it's so beautiful. Jesus is able to take what has been separated because of sin, God and human beings, 
beings and he reconciles us back together through his blood. We sing about the blood because only the blood of Jesus can do that. We say, oh, how precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. There is no other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only Jesus can do that. And we're seeing that picture laid out for us right here in chapter 24. This is an old covenant, but the cup we're going to partake of later, it's the new covenant. And it's made in Jesus' blood. And it's the way God sees all of us and connects us together. That's why the invitation is today is the day of salvation. Put your faith in Jesus. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. Jesus is Lord. And God raised him from the dead. If you do that, you will be saved. And God will cover you with that righteous blood. And it's not just a covering, it's also a cleansing. Sin removed as far as the east is from the west. That is what is going on here. So, so with, with Exodus here, now that this covenant is made, these people are covered with the blood. Look at what happens next. Verse 9 says, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God and ate and drank. Look at what we're seeing here. I think this is incredibly beautiful. The chapter 24 is this picture of this worship service. Kind of look at the order here. It all starts up with God calling people into worship. Then it's God reading and teaching the, the word being reiterated through Moses to his people. Then we have the people respond. We, we, we get their confession and their, their commitment. Then we see an altar built. We see sacrifice made. We see burnt offerings and peace offerings. Then a covenant shared and the people are brought into relationship with the Lord. We see God's grace. They're receiving what they don't deserve, forgiveness, acceptance, relationship. And then after all of that, we see the people walking back up the mountain and this time they see God. They see God. You can't mistake that, 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 that order. That's what we want. At the end of all of our worship, right? We want to see God. We want to see him. We want to have an experience with the true and living God. And that's what they're going to do. Now, before we talk specifically, specifically about that. Let's just not miss how awesome that part is. That's not what they saw going up the mountain the first time, right? But they see it the second time now that they're in relationship with God. And notice this is not just Moses this time. We, we get the idea, verse 11 says, on the nobles, which gives us the idea that all 74 that are up on this mountain are seeing the Lord. And they see him after entering, entering into relationship with him, after being covered by the blood. And that's just something I, I don't want to understate either. That's so important to understand. We live in a culture that is such a a show me culture. Prove it. We we say, hey, Jesus is Lord. And they're like, prove it. Like, prove it. And and we're going through some apologetics on our Wednesday night. There's there's a lot of evidences to say, but I want you to understand, just like we see here, the person who says, prove it. Just show me to go up that mountain. Just show me where I can go so I can see Jesus. Can you see right here? You can't just do it in your own way. God would say, you can't, you can't even touch the mountain. You can't just come to me however you want. You have to come to me through the way I've permitted you to come. Nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. No other name given among heaven for men to call on and be saved. Just Jesus. 
So what you have to do is you have to come to Jesus, respond to Jesus, and then when you put your faith in Jesus and you trust him, God says, now I'll show you. Now I'll reveal myself to to you. Now I'll show you the illumination of my word. But I want to prepare you, nobody's going to see everything. There will always be true until we're in heaven that no eye has seen nor ear heard the things that God has prepared for those who love him. We're not going to see everything, but we're going to see enough, and we're going to see the Lord. And you know, that's exactly what they see here. Notice they don't see everything, but they see enough. But notice what we're told. They see God. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, whoa, 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 they see God, how is that possible? I thought that we were told in John chapter 1 that nobody has seen God at any time. What do you mean, how could they see God? Or later, you know, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God is going to say, no man can see me and live. So you wait a minute, well, what's going on here? How come it says they see God, and yet it says other places that you can't see God? What, is this the Bible wrong? Is there a contradiction here? Listen, no, th- there, there's a few different explanations here. One really good one, two that are out there that I want you to know about. Some are going to say, well, this is just a vision of God. They go up the mountain, they see a vision of God, like Ezekiel sees a vision of God, like Amos sees a vision of God. And so that's why they don't die, it was just a vision. Others are going to say, well, no, no, they just saw the glory of God. And so that's why they were able to, it was just, it was a vision, or it was the glory of God. Now I have a problem with both of those explanations. Exodus 24 doesn't say it was a vision. Exodus 24 doesn't say it was the glory of God. Exodus 24 says they saw God. They saw with their own eyes, gaze upon, perceived the God of Israel. And so I would say, well, then, then what does that mean? Well, here's the explanation. What did we just learn in chapter 23? God very clearly tells Moses, we talked about it last week, God says, Moses, behold, get ready and be prepared to see what my angel who bears my name is going to be sent to you. He's going to lead you and guide you and shepherd you. We talked all about that last week and we talked about how that angel is Jesus. God is sending Jesus, his son, to come and reveal himself to his people. And that's exactly what happens here. This is, I, I, feel, I find this is perfectly consistent. And we say, well, how can Jesus be called the God of Israel? We'll look at some more verses. They can accurately see of Jesus. He is the God of Israel because look at what Paul says. This is Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. It says this, for in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You see that? All the fullness. So it is an accurate statement for someone to see Jesus and say, there's the God of Israel. You better believe it's the God of Israel because all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. Colossians 1.15 says this of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. So to see, to see God at all is to see Jesus because he is the visible image of the invisible God. It's absolutely accurate to say, there's the God of Israel and see Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Express image means the exact expression, the exact representation. 
So again, to see Jesus here, what God told them to expect was going to come. Behold, I send my angel. And now all of a sudden they see God up on the mountain. This is Jesus and it's perfectly consistent. But I want you to see this. This is amazing because what does it tell us? They saw. When they show up, all we have as a description is what is underneath Jesus' feet. Now, I love this. As they go up, we're still talking about worship, but as you go up and, and you want to have this experience with Jesus, you're like, I want to see the color of his eyes. I want to see, was his hair wavy? Was it straight? I want to see the brightness of his countenance. I want to see, I want to see his clothes wider than any launderer could make them. I want to see Jesus. What do they see? All they see is what's underneath his feet. And I love that because that brings two questions to my mind. Why is it that they only see what's underneath his feet? Well, option number one is because they fall down on their faces. Like I can't wait to do when I see my Jesus and I fall down and that's all I get to see because he's so worthy and I want him higher than me. I want to be everything that he is, greater than me, bigger than me, more awesome than me, more loving than me. My place is at his feet, just like Mary of Bethany. So I think that, that's, that's powerful. It's so worshipful to see them at his feet, describing what's underneath his feet. But I think there's another option. I like this one too. It says of that which is under Jesus' feet, they say it's like a paved work of sapphire. Now, if you know sapphire stone, you know that there's multiple shades of color. It's not just one color. Sapphire has a lot of different colors. But the most well-known, the most prominent color of sapphire stone is blue. This radiant blue. And they say what was underneath his feet was like the very heavens in its clarity. Was like the bluest sky you've ever seen, perhaps. Which means, listen, if they're not falling down at his feet, maybe they're looking up at his splendor. But if you look up, all you see, they know distinctly that's the God of Israel, but all they see is that he is above the highest of heavens. Or maybe say it this way, he is above and everything else is below. Jesus promises there will be a day when all of his enemies will be made his footstool. And we're looking forward to that day, but Christians don't think for a minute that everything is not already under his feet. It's already under his feet. And that is such the place where we want to be in worship. That's why we can praise him through every storm. That's why we can rejoice through every season, through grief, through suffering, through trial, through tribulation. There's always a reason to worship. If not for this point, everything is underneath his feet. He is winning. He will win. That's how it's going to end. Everything is underneath his feet. And I think that's just the most beautiful picture for them to be able to see as they see Jesus. But that's what we want. We want to keep our eyes fixed upon him. We want to see Jesus in COVID, in social unrest, in, in injustice. We want to see Jesus in all those situations and say he's above that. And somehow, in his perfect way, in his perfect will, in his perfect timing, he's going to work that out for, his good and, for, for our good and his glory. He is because he promised he would. He is because he's able, because he's over it all. I may not understand it. Christians, we may not always understand it. But it's true because he is faithful and his word has never failed to come to pass. So I love that either at his feet or looking up with, with awe and wonder, both postures of worship, and I'll accept them both. But I want to see Jesus in that, and I want you to see Jesus in that as well. 
A few more verses to touch on before we wrap this up. Verse 12 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up here to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written so that you may teach them. Now, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I love what is being said here. Not only is, is God telling Moses, I want you to come back up the mountain, and he doesn't say, Moses, why don't you bring a pencil? Why don't you bring a dry erase marker? Because I want to give you some things, but, but I want you to be prepared. They're going to change over time. You know, as, as culture changes, as, as the fickleness of human beings change, and we're going to need to erase these and rewrite these. That is not what God says, does he? He says, you don't need to bring anything up. I'm going to write them in stone. And I'm going to write them in stone because they're never going to need to change. They're, they're always going to apply to our lives in this world that God has created. They're written in stone. And I love that part, but I also love this part. I want you that you may teach them, Moses. God is commissioning. I love, I love to teach the Bible. And here, this is God's heart. I want you to teach this, my word, to your people all the days of your life. And then I want you to pass it down to, to men who can take it on to the next generation again and again and again until Jesus comes back. But I love that. That's what God says. That's his heart. Verse 13 says, So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and her are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Now, now Moses, we see here's Moses' shepherd's heart. He's going to go up the mountain and receive all this from the Lord. He's going to be up there for a time. We're going to see 40 days, 40 nights. But he he has a shepherd's heart. He says, I care about the people, so I'm going to leave Aaron and her in charge. And we're going to see that's not going to end out so well, but this is where he does. He's going to put these two guys in charge. If anyone has a problem, go to them. 15, then Moses went up into the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, God loves to do things on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Moses is going to be up there and that's where he's going to receive more of these instructions on what God has for the pattern with which he wants to be worshipped. The pattern that he's making available for us and his people here now in relationship with him to be able to approach him, to be able to keep that relationship pure before him, to be able to walk in fellowship with him. We're going to talk for several weeks about the, the tabernacle and the furnishings of the tabernacle, walking in the presence of God, living a life of worship. But I want to come all the way back to this place that we began. It all starts first with relationship. None of these other things are even available if you don't know the Lord your God, have received him as your God and chosen to be his people. And I say chosen in the sense that we say we will obey. His people saying we will obey. We will be obedient. Cover me with the blood. I want to be your people. And so they've responded and now this place is going to continue down that path to see all of the other components that worship is. 
But I just want you to know that if you're walking with the Lord today, know that, that there's more. Know that God has a lot to be able to teach you and I about worship. But if you're not, if you're still sitting there thinking, I don't know if I want to be covered with the blood or not. I want to know that's, that's your first step. That's the first step in, in, in being able to show God's worth, his ability to save and redeem you, his ability to save and redeem me. And then to show the Lord of our lives that, that as we worship God, it deepens our relationship with Jesus as Lord. It starts with entering into relationship with him. So don't delay. Today is new covenant day and you can put your faith in Jesus and be saved. You can confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead and you can be saved. And that is our hearts for you. That is the gospel message. That is the main thing that we'd want you to know. So if you're listening and you have not done that, we invite you to do that this morning. I want to pray right now and then I've got my communion elements. I hope that you have yours as well. And we're going to partake of communion. We're going to see just how real and applicable this is based upon everything else that we just talked about. So fathers, we just close out this time of teaching We come to you with such gratitude. Father, we come to you and and we see that you made a way where there is no way. God, it was your idea. It was your plan. And it was perfectly executed. And we thank you for it, God. We thank you that, that so many times our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. And even more than that, God, you say that even when sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's not a license. By no means do we want to keep sinning. But God, we recognize that sometimes we do, sometimes we have, and we come before you and say, Father, forgive us. Cleanse us again. Remind us that you have made us white as snow by your precious blood. And we we want to walk in the newness of the promises that you've made. We we want to have a, a willing spirit and a spirit of power, your spirit, in our hearts and lives flowing through us. So fill us with your spirit. And God, if there's anyone tuning in and listening and just doesn't know you, Jesus, hasn't surrendered to you, God, I hope they've been able to see this is your plan all along, that you want your people in relationship with you and you've made the way. You've promised a covenant, you kept the covenant, and you offer it to us in response to faith according to your great grace. So I pray that you would stir in hearts and people be making, making confession, making invitation, inviting you into their lives as Lord. Father, we love you and we praise you and, and look forward to communing with you now. In Jesus' name, amen.